Over the last few weeks, we've examined a series of things that have a direct impact into the final flavor that comes to you in the bottle. The grain, the primary barrel, and the yeast all play significant roles in creating unique flavor profiles to each brand's particular offering. We are smack dab in the middle of a whiskey boom in the United States, which ultimately means there's a mad dash into the marketplace to capture your fair share of the profits that are being generated because of this growth. This isn't the first time, and it certainly won't be the last time, that this particular consumer behavior has happened or will happen. In the late 1800s, the industry was booming in the United States. You'll find that many brands that you hold near and dear can trace their roots to this particular time frame. Non-distilling producers were growing by leaps and bounds during that time frame as much as they are this one. Experiments were being done to age whiskey faster or create a marketable product quicker or cheaper. Others were contracting distillation of their particular recipe by already existing companies. Maybe it shouldn't be hard to believe that the late 1800s go-to-market strategy wasn't too significantly different than that of the one today. Open a distillery, buy someone else's bourbon to sell while having someone else distill your recipe so you can replace your purchased already aged whiskey with something of your own design in the next two to four years. Experiments were being done to age whiskey faster or create a marketable product quicker and cheaper. The problem with that then and still today is that often the whiskey that you can buy already made is young, very young. As the stocks of appropriately aged whiskey are consumed, there's a need to change or hide the flavor. Historically, this would have been referred to as rectifying. Historical, non-distilling producers had the ability to add compounds to the whiskey or grain distillate to make it taste something like whiskey. Caramel, coloration, tobacco juice, and a whole host of other ideas were explored to make sure that the supply could meet the demand of the time. The problem became that more legitimate and storied brands became reluctant to refer to their products as bourbon because of this effort to speed up the sales cycle. This brought around things like the Bottled and Bond Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. Traditional distillers and producers were pushing back against this shortcut mindset that was running rampant in their market segment. This helped to define not only the product segment within the spirits industry for American whiskey, but it also helped to give a standard flavor profile to American whiskeys. Given the requirements for the distillation methods, aging requirements, and other facets of American distilling, we can identify what the taste of the United States is. This seems pretty great, but in a process that is part wizardry, and part artistic expression, sometimes the creative person wants to expand beyond that. Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truths, half-truths, and outright lies and decide if truthiness even matters. Thomas More was likely dealing with some of the same questions we are asking today as to how to differentiate his particular brand from the rest of the marketplace without adulterating the product with unnecessary ingredients. For those of you like me that may not know who Thomas More is, he has a pretty significant impact on today's bourbon economy. More was born in Kentucky and led a life relatively common to the time. 
His father died at an early age, and he was forced to take a job to support his family. Moore cared for his mother and siblings, eventually entered the whiskey industry around the age of 22. It's very odd as a person living in the current world to think that at 22 years old, he already had 11 years in the workforce. Through a connection with his sister, marrying into the Willett family, he began what would ultimately become his legacy. Along the way, he meets Ben Mattingly. These two men ultimately take over the distillery owned by Willett and Frankie to create the Mattingly and Moore Distillery in Bardstown, Kentucky. Mattingly and Moore eventually sold out the controlling share of the company to a group of investors, and Moore purchased some land and started his own distillery. He grew to the distillery and eventually was able to purchase the grounds of the previous Mattingly and Moore brand to incorporate into his new operation. That new operation continues to produce today under the title of Barton or 1792. As happens, the brand suffered some during Prohibition. It was reopened and eventually sold to Oscar Getz, where it was renamed Barton. Getz is believed to have randomly named the operation. Eventually, they produced the 1792 brand, which is named for the year that Kentucky became a state. While the growth of the brand has maintained over time, there's still this question lingering. How can you challenge or change the standard flavor profile of the American spirit? There aren't many things you can do to keep the product considered a bourbon, but there are a lot of things that can be done legally and ethically within the American whiskey confines. One of those things, specifically, is secondary barrel aging. If the distiller puts the spirit into a second, new oak container, they keep the bourbon dream alive. But as soon as you introduce a previously used barrel, you have to step back into the American whiskey world. But sometimes that step is worth it. A very easy transition is to that of wine barrels, and that's exactly what 1792 has done recently. They've revived the late Thomas Moore brand to release an ultra-premium whiskey that has been aged for a secondary phase in X wine barrels. While this methodology isn't entirely new, considering port and sherry finished whiskey is probably one of the older flavor enhancing steps that can be taken, the Moore brand explored something that was almost entirely unique to me. They aged in Chardonnay barrels. When I first saw this particular offering on the shelf, my immediate suspicion is that a lighter bodied wine like this would not hold up to the strong, almost oppressive flavors that come from aged bourbon. My understanding of Chardonnay wine being limited, it introduced a new rabbit hole for me to run down. I'll save you the details of that research and fall back to the impact that one might expect from Chardonnay-finished bourbon. Some of the flavors of Chardonnay being caramel, cinnamon, vanilla, and spice can be considered table stakes for bourbon flavor profiles, but the unique aspects that can bring to the table are things like butter, cream, smoke, coconut, clove. These flavors exist in some American whiskey, but aren't incredibly prevalent. One might even parallel the prolific nature of the base ingredients of bourbon and Chardonnay. In the United States, corn is the number one crop, and when considering only wine grapes, what is the most prolific grape in the United States? Chardonnay. While the tastes may parallel to some degree, one might expect this particular wine barrel to brighten up the deep flavors that come from bourbon. Once we've explored the world of aging in wine barrels, is secondary flavor addition largely a choice of what wine barrel to use? For some brands, it will absolutely stop there. The wide range of wine barrels that can be used are sufficient enough to allow for creative expression for dozens of years. But it doesn't have to stop there. If we've considered that you can age bourbon in a secondary barrel that previously held something else, you can open up some real creative floodgates. Historically, fermented pickles were put in oak casks for storage. Is that a good idea? Who knows? 
Beyond that, there might even be some brands launching whiskey that was aged in ex-Tabasco casks. That begs the question of, yes, many things are possible, but are they profitable? This type of thinking outside the box of, in the spirits industry for a location to derive secondary flavors led our next distillery to create their own spin on a secondary aging barrel that once held their own spirit. They handed over their barrels to someone else to age a non-spirit in and then brought the barrel back to the distillery to put whiskey in, hoping to impart some type of a new flavor profile. We've talked about Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery before, and you won't be surprised that we're going to talk about them again. They continue to be one of my favorite distilleries, producing a solid line of both non-distiller product as well as distilled on-site spirits. We know the Bell Mead line is sourced from another distiller and then bottled to suit their branding needs. A growing trend within the whiskey industry is to criticize or even diminish these efforts. There's a mindset that if everyone is buying from the same source, why are they all priced so differently? I try to avoid those types of comparisons because they are largely useless. Does the flavor in the bottle match the price I paid for it? If so, then what's there to complain about? If not, then I'll just move on. Maybe as an attempt to combat this mindset, Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery launched what they call the Bell Mead Bourbon Craftsman Cask Collection. The idea is to experiment with different cask finishes to produce unique and interesting flavor profiles. They have their share of wine finishes like any other brand, but one of the most highly sought after of the Craftsman Casks collection is that of the Bell Mead Honey Cask. What began as a symbiotic relationship between two homegrown brands has resulted in a lottery-only release of a fantastic finished bourbon. It all began several years ago with the distillery handing over several barrels that had been used to age some of their 10-year single barrel selections to the folks over at Truby Honey. Truby has been around for quite a while and they focus on making what they call hedge honey. Hedge honey isn't quite as ostentatious as single source honey, but maybe it fits the agricultural nature of bourbon more appropriately. The bees that produce Truby's honey feast on whatever flora happens to be in the area of their hive. This blend of potentially different flavors was harvested and then put inside the barrels acquired from Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery. Once the honey reaches the smoky honey flavor the apiary is after, they return these honey-laden barrels back to Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery empty so that it can then be refilled with bourbon and aged for the right amount of months to hit the flavor profile that they're after. What results is slightly different than a bourbon that has been infused with honey. There's an impregnation that happens instead of an infusion. The yearly release has created quite the buzz within the whiskey community leading to a lottery and an incredible markup in the secondary market. Whiskey purists probably feel more comfortable with secondary barrel aging because it doesn't seem to be too far removed from the traditional whiskey making process to be considered non-traditional. But we have at least one more brand to go before we end our journey in additional flavoring that might be historically considered rectification and another one to go that might mimic a process even older than American whiskey. Cherry is one of those flavors that already exists within the whiskey profile in a prolific fashion. Why add more? Probably because it represents your particular region's impact on the world's agronomy. I wasn't really aware of the abundance of the impact that the state of Michigan has on the cherry industry until much later in life. 
I was working for a company that one of the executives was a Michigander. My former boss's boss brought into our break room a bucket full of cherries fresh from Michigan. Growing up in areas that have cherries, you think you understand what the flavor of the particular fruit is supposed to be. Sometimes that's turned upside down when you taste what might be the central thought for what a flavor is. I'm not going to say that the flavor was transcendent or spiritual because I really don't like cherries that much. But I fully understand that my concept of cherry flavor was some muted, sepia-toned version of the actual flavor. Rightly so, the state of Michigan can also stake its claim into cherry-flavored whiskey. Since you can't see me, I'm using air quotes around the word flavored. The problem is that artificial cherry flavor is much like artificial banana flavor. The fake is too far removed from the original to be even relatable back to the central flavor. How does one impart the flavor of cherry without capturing this imposter flavor to represent an offering from the state of Michigan? Traverse City Whiskey Company is situated in the cherry capital of the world, in the middle of a multi-generational cherry farming family. To represent their true identity, they take cherries grown on the family farm and steep them in the actual whiskey. While the honey addition might be considered impregnation, this is essentially making cherry whiskey tea. This steeping should allow for a more subtle influence into the whiskey. Success for the company is great enough to warrant a yearly cherry whiskey fest. For the second year in a row, we as consumers have had the ability to buy a kit and attend a virtual cherry whiskey fest and taste some of their distillery-only barrel-proof cherry whiskey. This is a chance for them to grow awareness of their brand. It merges perfectly within a virtual community that is necessary during a national pandemic, but it really benefits those of us that are geographically removed from being able to attend but still have a good interest in it. I'm glad to be able to keep a library of these offerings to compare against each other from year to year. As they explore this avenue of flavor enhancement, their methodologies will likely change, as will the final output. The concept of regionality influencing flavor is one that isn't specific to Michigan or even to cherries. We've talked about grain to glass and being a locavore several times before, and I'd be hypocritical if I didn't practice what I preached. And that is what found me driving around the western portion of the state several months ago visiting a handful of craft distilleries that reside west of Bowling Green, Kentucky. One of those distilleries is M.B. Rowland. When I first pulled onto the drive leading up to the distillery, the rural atmosphere is quite quaint. It points to a grain-to-glass concept. Walking in, however, was a slightly different feel. Usually when I go to smaller distilleries, I expect to find a very small handful of offerings, but nothing is farther from the truth at N.B. Rowland. The sheer quantity of different spirits they offer is mind-boggling. These offerings don't seem to be an attempt to grab more money as much as a series of experiments gone well. They are no amateur when it comes to innovation and experimentation. Hell, they even produced a hemp whiskey. If that doesn't sound innovative to you, keep in mind farming hemp wasn't actually legal until a few years ago. Making hemp whiskey seems pretty regionally specific, but it's not the offering that embeds their identity in that of Western Kentucky. A few episodes back, I touched on the idea of West Kentucky dark fire tobacco and its proliferation in this particular region. There are a handful of things that epitomize this region, and this is one of the primary items for me. That's what drew my attention to their dark-fired Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. How could they begin to think about capturing the essence of this process inside of a bottle? Maybe it was taking a page out of an ancient playbook. In the world of Scotch, the idea of peat smokiness is a byproduct of processing the grain before it enters the mash. 
peat is essentially decayed old vegetation that was widely used in Scotland as a method of heating. Homes, stills, and even the malt floors all had readily available access to peat and was a pretty good heat source. Ultimately, however, it imparts a significant flavor profile to into scotch. There isn't much material, but what I can infer here is that M.B. Rowan has dark-fired their corn prior to mashing. If they follow the tradition of dark-firing tobacco, it means that they've used hardwood sawdust in a low-flame fire to create copious amounts of smoke with the hope that that smoke clings to the corn. Is it before the corn is milled or after? I couldn't tell you that, but to me, it would make sense to try both paths. What I do know is that this craft distillery has used a methodology that is tangential to traditional scotch processing to create regionally specific flavor profiles. Is it successful? Go buy a bottle and find out. With a spirit so highly regulated like bourbon and American whiskey, it's not easy to explore a more creative flavoring profile without stepping outside the lines. This largely has to do with what might be considered bad actors in the historical time frame of the existence of the spirit. People wanting to cut corners or increase profitability while producing an inferior spirit have created handrails that the current distillers must operate within. But as evidenced by the list of brands on today's episode, we find that it forces innovation to be even more creative. The folks at these brands have found ways to enhance our enjoyment of America's spirit. Over the last five episodes, I've explored how things like the aging methodology, grain source, grain type, type of wood, yeast, or even secondary methodologies might impact the final flavor of the product in the bottle for us. We may have a couple of more things up our sleeves to talk about the foundational blocks that impact the final product. If you've made it this far, please send me a message on social media at my email address or by Carrier Pigeon. The first few people to do so might get a courier delivery of some goodies to have on hand when we start doing taste-alongs episodes in a couple of months. Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable.